Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 37. We continue our study of this book to Genesis 37. We'll look at the latter half of the chapter, beginning with verse 12 down through verse 36. Genesis 12, I mean 37, 12 to 36. You may have seen the sign uh, last week down at, on the guide at the lumber company. It says, no one ever says it's just a game when their side is winning. Well, I read a similar statement this week about God's providence. It says, it's easy to believe in providence so long as we get our own way. Easy to believe in providence so long as we get our own way. Ah, but what about when things go wrong? What then? Where is God in the midst of evil? That's the subject of our text this morning. Let me read it for us. Genesis 37, beginning with verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dream. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, but they're, they're empty, there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept 
for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. <clears throat> there are two closely related truths we need to learn from this text this morning. And the first is this. God makes even wickedness serve him. God makes even wickedness serve him. Last week we spoke of God's sovereignty working out his plan. That theme of God's control of all things is called providence. Providence. Such a wonderful truth. God ordaining everything that comes to pass for his own good purposes. I guess one of the most beautiful expressions of providence is the definition given in the Heidelberg Catechism written way back in 1563. Here's how it goes. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and, po and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. Oh, what a blessed truth. Providence, that all things come to us not by chance, but from God's fatherly hand, which upholds us. Now, we talked about that last week, and God's sovereignty and his good plans. How about this week? Let's go a step further into the incomprehensible ways of God. For what about wickedness? Sure, God controls things in general, but how does that interface with the reality that wicked people freely do wicked things in blatant defiance of God's providence? Well, last week we spoke of the new open theism, that growing wrong view of God, which redefines God as less than the God of the Bible. And for the open theist, of course, this is no problem, for they reject the idea that God has an eternal plan which will surely come to pass. Instead, God is waiting to see what his free human agents will do. And God's greatness, according to them, is manifest in that he's able to cope with anything that turns up. So he constantly shifts his plans. If plan A doesn't work, he tries plan B. Oh, but that's not the God of the Bible. That, that's not the God who upholds all things by his hand. So this morning we face a truth which is even further beyond, beyond our comprehension than the simple fact of providence. This morning we face the reality that God makes even wickedness to serve his purpose. Now, that's a difficult thing to articulate. For on the one hand, God cannot be the author of sin. Sin is abhorrent to God. It's contrary to his holiness. It's, it's, it's an assault on his very character. But at the same time, neither does God trample over the freedom he's given his creatures. Human beings make choices for which God holds them accountable. So how can we define God's control of wickedness without trampling on what God has created of human responsibility or trampling over God's holiness. Well, I think the best definition I know is found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
written back in the uh, 17th century. It's a bit heavy, so I'll read it from a more modern revision. Listen. God's providence extends even to the fall and to all other sins of angels and men. These sins are not simply allowed by God, but are bound, ordered, and governed by him in the fullness of his wisdom and power so that they fulfill his own holy purposes. However, the sinfulness still belongs to the creature and does not proceed from God, whose holy righteousness does not and cannot cause or approve sin. Or as I tried to say it more simply, God makes even wickedness to serve him. Now that's what's going on in our text here in Genesis 37. Consider, first of all, all the things which happen providentially. Look at the strange so-called coincidences which take place in this story. For example, why did Jacob send Joseph to his brothers in the first place? Wasn't there anyone else, a servant or someone who could go? Considering the hostility that he had to know existed between Joseph and his brothers. And then why did the brothers go to Dothan? If the grazing wasn't good in Shechem, why didn't they just return home? Dothan is even further away. Ah, but Dothan is on a major trade route from Gilead over to the great north-south trade route down to Egypt. And isn't it interesting how Joseph, as he wandered in the field looking for his brothers, just happened to find someone who knew where his brothers were. And isn't the timing interesting? All of Joseph's searching and traveling gets him there just before the caravan passes. Not too early, not too late. And isn't it lucky that Reuben stopped the brothers from killing Joseph when he first arrived? Oh, but what a coincidence that Reuben was not there when the caravan came and they decided to sell him as a slave. And wasn't it lucky that Judah thought of selling Joseph just as the caravan approached? What a set of coincidences. What good luck, or should I say, what bad luck? Oh no, you see, it's not coincidence at all. It's not luck at all. This is God's providence at work, ordering all the events of the life of his servant, Joseph. Oh, but you see, woven through all these events are also some of the most wicked acts imaginable. Let's just think through it again at the wickedness that we see here. For example, in verse 18, even before Joseph arrived, when his brother saw him at a distance, Already they plotted to kill him. Specifically, they plotted to kill him because of the dreams that God had revealed to him, something Joseph had nothing to do with. And then when they decided not to kill him, even the alternate plan was no more merciful. They threw him into a dry cistern. Dr. Dr. Bruce Waltke tells us that archaeologists have found a large number of these cisterns all over Israel. They're large bottle-shaped pits hewn out of rock for retaining water. They range from 6 to 20 feet in depth so that a dried-out cistern makes an excellent dungeon. 
And there, apparently, they planned to just leave him to die slowly. In this account, we're not told that Joseph said anything as they threw him into the cistern to leave him to die. But as we look further down in the story, back into Genesis 42, these guilt-ridden brothers can be heard to say to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. Talk about wickedness. Here their baby brother, begging for his life. And they care not, I think. And then think of wickedness recorded in verse 25. They sat down to eat their meal. As Joseph begs for mercy, as Joseph cries out in distress, as Joseph begs for his life, they sit down to eat lunch. Derek Kidner writes, the meal is the final touch of callousness. Oh, but the wickedness is not through yet. When the caravan came, they sold their brother as a common slave to be taken off to a foreign country, never to be seen again. And as they did, they congratulated themselves that they had not killed him, had not shed his blood. Oh, but their wickedness was not just to Joseph. They then took Joseph's coat and dipped it in the blood of a goat they had slaughtered and gave it to their father, Jacob. Now, they didn't exactly lie to him. They just set him up to draw a wrong conclusion. A wild animal killed my son. By the way, remember that what goes around comes around. Remember back in the story chapters earlier when Jacob deceived his own father by killing a goat and taking the skin and pretending that he was Esau in order to steal Esau's blessing. Sin has consequences. And then talk about hypocrisy. When Jacob grieved the loss of his son Joseph, we read in verse 34 that all his sons came to comfort him. Here they gather around him, oh dad, it's all right. I'm sure he's in a better place. What hypocrisy. Save me the tears. And so the deceit continued. Their father Jacob grieved like they never imagined. He said, he will not be comforted. In mourning I will go down to my grave, he said. And so while their father grieved, while he cried out in anguish, while he cried himself to sleep, while his heart broke into a million pieces, and his soul slowly died inside at the vision of his son being ripped apart by an animal and killed for over 20 years. The brothers never said a word. Never told Joseph that told Jacob that Joseph was really alive. Never mounted an expedition to go and find him and bring him back home. Just hardened themselves to their father's terrible grief. Have you ever seen such wickedness in a family? Such protracted, cold-hearted, murderous evil? How are we to think of such things? Doesn't this fly into the face of our sweet talk of God's providence? Where was God in all of this? Did he not care? 
Was he powerless to stop it? What should we think? Oh, dear people, we don't have to wonder. For Joseph himself supplies the answer. If we go to the end of the story, if we go and read the last chapter of this book, there the brothers stand before Joseph, now at his mercy, as he has risen to power in Egypt, second in command only to Pharaoh. And there the brothers have come to find food, for they're starving to death because of the famine. And there as they are fearful of Joseph, who now controls their life, Joseph explains how we should think of all this wickedness. In Genesis 50, verse 19, he explains to them the big picture which we often fail to see. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Did you hear that? You intended to harm me. Oh, Jacob, or Joseph understood this was real wickedness. He had no misgivings about the intentions of his brothers. But God intended it for good. Joseph understood that God makes even wickedness serve his purpose. You know, there is no question so bitter in all human experience as the question, why, in the face of terrible wickedness. I would never seek to minimize what that means for the person who stands the victim of terrible wickedness. At that point, we are face to face with things too mysterious for any of us to understand. We cannot comprehend an acceptable answer to the only question that matters, why? Why, Lord? Why? And folks, what we have in this chapter is one such situation. Here is the agony of a father whose son just disappeared. Here is the agony of a teenage boy suddenly ripped from his father's home and enslaved in a country where he knew nothing of the customs or the language and has no right and can't even call home. Here is unspeakable loneliness and longing and agony of heart. This has all the makings of bitterness and rebellion against God, if there is such a God. Oh, but you see, in at least this one situation, God has pulled back the curtains just a little to let us see why. For you see, God was not being heartless and mean. He had not forgotten his servant, Joseph. He was not punishing Jacob, no God was preserving his chosen people in the face of certain disaster. He was preserving a people for himself from whom a Savior would be born to take away the sin of the world. He was keeping his promises, remaining faithful right in the middle of every human heartbreak. 
For though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. This morning I call you to humble yourself before such a God. There is no one like the Lord. He knows the end from the beginning. His ways are unsearchable. His wisdom is unfathomable. Indeed, he makes even the wickedness of men to serve his good purpose. This morning I tell you, he is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your life. But before we quit, there's a second closely related truth which we need to hear. And that's this. That God saves us through his rejected deliverer. God saves us through his rejected deliverer. Oh, if this story is about God's sovereignty, and it certainly is, it is equally about his grace. For God didn't just work his sovereign plan in spite of their wickedness. Oh, it goes way beyond that. God worked his plan to save them while they were rejecting the very deliverer that God appointed. Folks, this is a precursor to the gospel, the story of God saving us through his rejected son, Christ Jesus. Now, Jesus is not a descendant of Joseph. We're going to talk more about that in days to come. But Joseph is certainly a type or a foreshadowing, a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is specifically the case in regard to this matter of being the rejected deliverer. Consider the parallels between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus who came centuries later. Joseph's father sent him to his brothers, according to verse 14, to literally see about their shalom, their peace. He was sent in peace. And so God the Father sent his son Jesus into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He was sent in peace. In the dreams, God revealed to Joseph that his plan involved exalting Joseph, and they hated him for his claims to be God's chosen one. And so Jesus was hated because of his very accurate claim that he was sent from the Father to do the Father's will. And so Joseph lived a life of suffering, hated without a cause, and Jesus lived a life of suffering, a life of deepening humiliation as he was hated without a cause. In the wrath, Joseph's brothers plotted to kill him, and so Jesus came unto his own, but his own would not receive him. Indeed, they plotted to kill him. But God worked his sovereign plan through Joseph to save the very people who hated him, and similarly, God worked his sovereign plan of salvation through Jesus for the very benefit of those whose sins he bore on the cross. Ian Duguid explains, in Joseph's case, he, was, he does not die. The goat substitutes for him, and his father will later receive him back as if from the dead. No one, however, substituted for Jesus. He pays the full price himself, 
before being received back by his father, literally from among the dead. You see, this story is not just about Joseph. This is a story by which God points us to Jesus. He's the one who came to bring us peace. He's the one who was really rejected by his own, not just his earthly brothers, although that was true, but all of his creatures everywhere. He's the one betrayed by those close to him. He's the one sold for the price of a slave. He's the one who, having been rejected and hung on a cross, now brings salvation to the very people who brought him pain. Joyce Baldwin explains, though he could not know it, Joseph was going through an experience which was to become a major theme of the Bible. The godly servant was despised and rejected only to become the rescuer of those who abused him. There's an interesting thing in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. Stephen is on trial for his life. He's given a defense for his faith. And in his exhortation, not pleading for mercy, but uh, exhorting and, uh, and uh, rebuking and calling to repentance those who persecute him, in that exhortation, he brings up this matter of Joseph. We find it in Acts chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Let me read. Stephen says, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. That's a strange thing for Stephen to bring up as he makes his defense. Why does he bring Joseph up? Well, if we read further down in his a speech, we find an answer in verses 51 and 52. Let me continue reading. He says, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Oh, do you see Stephen's point? It's the same point I'm trying to make this morning. There is a pattern throughout the scriptures, and Joseph is a case in point. A pattern which culminates in the cross of Christ. It is a pattern of rejecting the very deliverer whom God raises up. Rejecting the very one that God sends to save us. Oh, but you see, there is no other salvation. God saves us through his rejected deliverer. It was true for Joseph's family, and it's true for you and me. The only hope of Joseph's brothers was eventually that Joseph saved them. Indeed, this is the radical message of Jesus. What the apostles preached in the streets of Jerusalem only a, a few weeks after Jesus was crucified, they said, there is no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved but this one rejected deliverer, Jesus Christ. Now that's a humbling thing. 
It's humbling for us to think that we have to seek salvation from the very person we've hated, from the very person we've, we've spurned. It was a humbling experience for Joseph's brothers as they found themselves at the mercy of Joseph, whom they hated, whom they sold into slavery, whom they wanted to kill. And it's a humbling experience from us to realize that we have no hope but to humble ourselves before the Savior. He is the stone that the builders have rejected, but God made the cornerstone of his temple anyway. He's the anointed one hated by the people he came to rule, but God has installed him as his king anyway. He's the holy one against whom you have sinned, who, who, against, you and, against whom you and I have said we will not have his rule, him rule in our life. He is the one from whom we deserve judgment, but he is our only hope of salvation. This morning he calls you to himself. He calls you to humble yourself and come, to confess your sin and unworthiness, to admit your rebellion against him, to acknowledge your desperate need and cast yourself out on his mercy. But as he does, he promises that those who come to him in such a way, he will never, never turn away. God promises to save us through his rejected deliverer. The story of, Jason, of Joseph may be quite familiar to us. But the story of God's ways, which is really the point of this story, may have gone unnoticed. And so this morning I announce to you these two wonderful truths from Genesis 37. First of all, God makes even wickedness to serve him. And thus, secondly, God saves us through the rejected deliverer. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost, right there in Jerusalem, only 50 days after Jesus was hung on a cross, this was his message to the people. Men of Israel, he said, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death, nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was not possible for death to keep its hold. In other words, Peter says, God has used even your wickedness, your hatred, your rejection of Jesus to bring about his perfect plan. Well, the people of Jerusalem in that day, as they heard Peter preach, were cut to the heart, realizing that they had rejected and hung the cross the very Messiah they hoped for. And so they cried out to the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we do now? And the answer came back clear as a bell. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name 
of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. And you will receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. You see what Peter's saying? God will save you through Jesus, the very deliverer you've rejected. This morning, dear people, I tell you, those truths have not changed. They were true for the people of Jerusalem who hated Jesus, then had to come to seek him for salvation. And they are true for you this morning. Amen. Father, I pray that you would take the truth of this text, the wonderful gospel of Jesus that we see foreshadowed here, and that you would apply it to the hearts of all the hearers who hear this word, that you would grow in us your truth until it produces repentance and faith, confidence, trust in the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the assurance that your plan is so great and your sovereignty is so great that even our wickedness cannot thwart your plan. For, Lord, only in your deliverer do we have hope. And it's in his name we pray.